Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. Gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or where is it? It's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> oh shit, is it me? It's me. Welcome, welcome, horror fans. <laughs> totally didn't have the script up. Welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast, the only syndicated podcast in Tromaville. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you too can join here. Join us here on YouTube for all of the bloody fun of the live show. Join us. You could get stuff. It's amazing. This week, we are covering select horror films released October 16th through October 22nd. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight are Aaron and Eugene. Hey, hey. Everybody. He's he's so excited. (laughs) I'm like, like, this is just like, oh, I need more liquor. Oh man, oh man. It is it is so it it's it's wild. So uh it's been a really, really interesting week. Um really cool cool stuff, kinda of like on my on like my personal channel and all the stuff that I do over there. It's just been absolutely wild and crazy and just nuts. And of course the face of horror stuff that's going on that I'm currently involved with. Um, you know, th- that that's we're gonna update that here in just a second. But uh my week's been kind of nuts, but I'm so glad that we finally get to sit down and we get to talk about these uh, the films we've selected tonight because I'm excited about these ones. Um, but first and foremost, I got to ask y'all, and I noticed uh, here in the live actually, you know, but first before we jump jump into it, let's see see who we've got in the live chat tonight. Let's just uh, first and foremost, we're gonna put up the banner. There's our Patreon banner. All of the amazing people that helped to make the show possible. Thank you all so very very much. And let me go through the list to see who we've got tonight. Rodan no less name was here first as one more hour to Halloween, 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 one more hour to Halloween, Silver Shamrock, yes, because we are talking about Halloween 3 tonight. Underrated mm-hmm. fucking horror, in my opinion. I mean, oh, God, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I Heart Dogs is here. Good to see I Heart Dogs. Says great titles tonight. Not sure I saw Halloween 3. Well, you should as soon as possible. It's freaking amazing. Travis Brown is here as well. One of our amazing supporters says, Good evening, horror freaks and nerds. Good to see you, Travis Brown. Mr. Andrad as well is here. He said, Oh, yes. He's talking about that uh, that current uh, judgment that just came through. And uh, you have to, obviously, we'll be talking about Yeah, we could talk about that on another deal. But yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, let me see here. Jinju is here says, hello everyone, I have no idea why I'm wearing a silver shamrock mask either. Well, be sure to take it off before 9 o'clock. 
You know, there is no grand prize. <laughs> there is not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, who else we got in the chat? NANA is here. Good to see you, NANA. Another longtime supporter. Good to see you. Jinju says, that's a mind-melting can of worms worse than any silver shamrock mask could turn your brains into. This is very, very true. Elizabeth Sylvester is in the house. Good to see you, Elizabeth. Another one of our big supporters. Thank you so much for being here. And I see Raven Darkstar as well. Says, hello, hello all. Good to see you, Raven. Denova28 as well. Says, hey, everybody. Good to see you. Sarcasm as well. Good to see you. Donnie does that. Look at all these amazing individuals. Our live chat is always awesome. Joshua Lee is in the house. Another one of our amazing supporters. Appreciate you being here, bud. As well as Tony Regime says, hello, Weekend Horror, with all the obligatory alternative energies. Thank you so much, Tony. <laughs> That's inside joke for ghosts. <laughs> ghosts. But I appreciate you being here, bud. Mr. Malort, all the way from Chicago. Good to see you, Mr. Malort. Enjoy a glass of Malort on me. And then, of course, I see, yes, Joshua Lee, Tromaville. Absolutely. Rodin Los Angeles says, Eugene is buffering. Oh, wait, it's just his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joshua Lee says, where's the hat, Aaron? Because for those who are listening to this after, Aaron is doing his absolute best Freddy impersonation tonight. I've got Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't even need makeup. Oh! No, the, the, the children oh. killed me today. Fuck you, Jay. <laughs> 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 all right yes okay <laughs> make me oh, watch all these shitty movies and then show up and fucking roast me <laughs> <laughs> sir chasm says big crowd tonight for the epic turd polishing episode this is not a turd polishing episode my friend we got good movies to talk about tonight this does imply that we have talked about shitty movies in the past but we have <laughs> But I'm not Paul. No, no. Okay, something. These films oh, are good. Okay, Facty is here. Debatables. <laughs> Facty is here. Uh, in the chat. Good yeah. to see you, Facty. <laughs> Cindy Johnson as well. Good to see you, Cindy. Thanks so much for being here. And of course, I see. And <laughs> Annie says, "Ouch, bitch." <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, Tony Regime says, "I need the ghost energy to stop my internet from going down." This is true. I was trying to do a live stream last night on my personal channel. And, like, all the power went out. And not just our house. Like, the entire neighborhood. We couldn't find an area that had lights on. And it was creepy as hell because, all you know, the power went out. And we were like, what the hell? So we go outside. Everything is pitch black. The, the street lights, everything is just out. And then you see, like, little flashlights popping up in people's homes trying to figure shit out. So, but it was out for, like, 15 minutes. And in this neighborhood, because I'm so rural, this area is so creepy when there's no power. Because it's just pitch black. So it was super, super interesting. <clears throat> and no, Super uh, creepy. Yes. He says, uh, Travis Brown says, Looks like jail is going to polish the turd for Halloween ends since early reviews are out. Um, I haven't read any reviews. I haven't watched anything. I'm going to watch it when it comes out. And we're going we're gonna to stream it when it comes out. And we're going to decide then. So, I, like I said, I did the same thing with Halloween. Did the same thing with Halloween Kills. I'm going to watch it and make up my mind for myself. Yeah, don't read uh, reviews, because if you read reviews and you go and watch the movie, you see everything you point out. A shitty review makes a shitty movie. Just go see the movie. If bingo. score's low enough, you can avoid it. But if it's anywhere above a three, just go see the damn movie. <laughs> Tony Regine says, see, oh, I don't, I, oh. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. No, go. I, I'm telling you, it's going to struggle. It's going to struggle. But go ahead. <laughs> Tony Regine says, oh, JL, I can feel the burn from that jab at Aaron from here. Uh yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's just shaking his head. 
fantastic. Yeah, Charlie Welch. <laughs> Charlie Welch is in the house. Good to see you, Charlie Welch, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Also, one of our longtime supporters. Good to see you, and Mr. Andrade as well. Thank you so much for hanging out. So, um, first and foremost, now that now that it's been out, and I've had the chance to see it four times, and I know y'all have probably watched it once or twice. Um, Hellraiser, Hulu's new Hellraiser. Initial Wait, reaction. You saw that movie. You saw that movie four times. Yeah, I've watched it four times so far. Four. I, yeah, okay. four times. I watched watched that four times, and I watched the movies that we have to that we uh, actually I re I technically watched all four, but two of them were like rewatches, and because I've seen because uh, you know, but and nonetheless, but yeah, I've watched. Well, fuck yeah, I love it. It's amazing, and I want to see all the little details. I want to pinpoint all the little things about it. But um, and Hellbound Heart, the short story that it's that it's based off of. It's. I want to see. It's like how true to this. How true to Clive Barker's original vision did they did they get? And it's on point. So I fucking loved every aspect of it, especially because some of the things that people I've read about in reviews that people are complaining about, they don't really grasp Clive Barker's vision and the vision that it that is literally rife through all of his works. So if you look at like things like Candyman and Lord of Illusions and all the stuff that he's created, if you go to the, the actual books. There are thematic elements in that, and basically, the, his male and female characters usually behave in a certain way. So there are relationship dynamics that are very important to Clive Barker's work, and he uses them time and time again because that's the kind of universe of the world that that he writes in. And so, when these get reflected, when these get reflected in the actors, they, some people will interpret that as like, well, why are they acting this way? Because that's what Barker intended in order to get specific themes across. So what people are mistaking for something bad is actually really, really good. And that's why Clive Barker and Doug Bradley have both like signed off, said this thing. They, they absolutely love what they did. So I fucking loved it. And I've watched it, like I said, four times. I probably will watch it a fifth if I get bored. So I want, I want to get y'all's reactions to it. It was a really good movie. I'm still trying to decide if it's a great movie. If you, The big thing is if you walk in... Don't walk in judging it based on the movies you've seen. That's just plain unfair. Um, but it's it's a really, really good movie uh, as a standalone. There's some stuff looking back that I, I think they could have held over from the older movies to kind of... They were, they were elements I would have liked to see and explore in the original movies, and they may have been in the comics, but now they're kind of dropped dead. The same as, you know, canon killing with, you know, Star Wars and uh, some of the... Star Trek offshoots and stuff. But beyond that, I mean, as a standalone, it stands up. It's a great movie. I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, you're really going to enjoy watching it if you don't walk in saying this better damn well be like the original because it's just not going to be ever. <laughs> Eugene, you're you're uncharacteristically no, so... non hyper verbal at the moment. <laughs> oh, I watched it yesterday and. It's not a bad movie. It's not. It's not. It's not a bad movie. It's not anything that's like, oh, it's is. It's not trash. It's anything. That, it's a movie. The thing. The thing to me is that it's forgettable. Like when I watched it four times, I felt like I watched it one. Like, I'm good. Like it's like it's mm. not bad. It's not. It's. Like, I enjoyed it. But it's not something I'm gonna like put on my rewatch list or <laughs> like say the first three. Like the first three, yeah, I, I watch those all the time. But go 
um, that one, I was like, okay, that's a good move. Okay, what's next? Like, that's just like that's how it, it just felt like it was maybe it was just missing something. Um, it was just something to really ele- even when y'all said it was like it, it's a good movie, not sure, quite sure it's a great movie. That's where I kind of agree, like, it's good, but this isn't a movie I want to be thinking about five years from now, or I'm going to be talking about or stuff unless it you know pops up on the podcast. <clears throat> but that's just kind of was kind of was kind of like okay, it was good, it was neat, but that that was it about it. So, so the reason I watched it so many times, I probably will, I probably watch it again because I like it and I I just really enjoyed it. But so first and foremost, the reason you first watch it because it's out and you're gonna watch it, and you're gonna take it in for what it is. The second viewing and the, the 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 subsequent viewings that I have are then to kind of critique what I'm watching because now that I know the story, know what's happening, I can pay attention to other details in the film. So first and foremost is all about the special effects. What they pulled off, what looks good, what does look good. All of it looked fantastic. And then, of course, the creature designs of the, of the Cenobites themselves and how they were able to pull off the different deals and what they kind of did with them. Because, the, like they say, the devil is in the details when it comes to it. It's the little things that they put in there that you may miss on that first viewing. So I go in there to watch that. And little things like... How it's not really focused on, but there are certain things that when you when you when you pause it and you look, you can tell. Like for example, Jamie Clayton, who was fucking magnificent as Pinhead, didn't ape Doug Bradley at all. Made it her own. It's inspired uh, from uh, what Clive Barker originally wrote. I loved it. It was inspired. But when you look at things like the design of it, it obviously is markedly different than Doug Bradley's version. But the big thing on this one is like it's little things like this. Like if you notice, because she's because effectively she's a priest. If you look at her, or uh, if you look at um, the kind of like the way her, it's not really her outfit. The character's skin is flayed from her legs, all around her legs. And then it's stretched and pulled down so that it looks like a robe. But it's it's actually the skin of her body from her waist down. And you can tell when you look at the design how the skin has been pinned back down to the waist in order to create the robe look. As the as the 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 flaps uh, sway down around her legs, so it's little details like that. It was like, oh, that's really really cool. And then, so the form and functionality of the of the costuming and the makeup design and the and the the prosthesis are really really magnificent. Then you go through and I watch it for the acting, and I watch it for the writing. So I see how are these actors pulling it off. How is the writing in this? Are things conveyed the way they're meant to be conveyed? Is this really taking inspiration from from Barker's work? How much is the writers really putting in this? And then you look for the direction, which is this was David Bruckner. Uh, this was uh, David Bruckner who directed this, and he did fucking amazing. And not to mention David S. Goyer, who is a well-known producer, was also an executive producer on this. So you can see where their talents are, and of course, so with. Bruckner behind it, and uh, Jamie Clayton as, as Pinhead, and shouldn't be the focus. The focus is the characters, not the Cenobites. That was important, because that's like the short story. The Cenobites are functions of what they're doing, not the story to be told, which is where the Hellraiser, original Hellraiser films kind of like lost the plot, because everybody wanted to see Doug Bradley. So that this was very, very well done, exceptionally well done. The little bits and pieces, the little attention, the attention to detail was phenomenal and that's why i just fell in love with this i felt like i fell in love with the whole thing and thought it was brilliantly done any of the little things like if, if you say that there were minor weaknesses and you say well i can interpret that as a weakness but it's not because that's how clive barker intends to portray these characters so they can convey certain things 
so they can convey certain human aspects in relation to the Cenobites themselves and why they do these things. So well written. I wish I could write to that degree, you know, for the screen to to adapt something like that. Oh, I was just fucking stunning. Well, they it's gonna suffer too from the fact that, um, or at least it's gonna suffer as far as how people review it and address it. From the fact that the original Hellraiser came out at a perfect time, not only because it was it's body modification or uh, body horror, but it's it got pushed through by the slasher, um, the tail end of the the slasher boom. Um, you know, horror movies were a lot more popular back then, very frankly. But um, also the subculture and stuff that's attached to because in this one, like you said, they used a lot more flesh. Whereas in the original, they used leather. He wore robes, mm-hmm. but they were leather. Um, and there, it was kind of attached to, uh, you know, the leather culture, BDSM, which goes along with the fact they're exploring sensation. And the original, um, it's kind of hinted at it's not just pain, it's also pleasure, which they're both just nerve stimulation to one degree and, or another. Um, and so all those things, the body modification, that's why I said that, is also tied to the fact that, you know, People had begun piercing and altering themselves, and that was taken to an extreme. So it's not got that cultural tide to carry it quite as well. So that's that's going to hurt it as far as what people remember. But as far as the movie construction itself, it's still pretty solid, I think. Nice. Well, see, and this, that's the thing, the issue I have is it falls into the good category. But it's just good. It's not the great. The great and excellent one are the films you constantly keep going back. And then you have the really bad films that just sear them in your brain. And you'll <laughs> never forget them because they're just so bad. And the new Hellraiser kind of falls in this kind of in the middle area where it's good. I'm not saying it's a bad film. It's a good film. I did enjoy it. But I wouldn't say it's a great film. And so then it kind of fall. I, I see it falling through the cracks of it's like a, it's those films you watch, you watch them one time and they're like, man, that was a really good film. And then you just never watch it again or you never talk <laughs> about it. And there's nothing, there's like nothing wrong. It's just one of those like, oh, okay. It's, it's pretty, it's like you have a film that's like so good. 80% has good rewatch value. 10% or below or so bad, it's hilarious. But you have that, it's like a 70. I would give it about a 70. So it's like, it's a, oh, it's a, it's a, but I would just wouldn't go back to it very often. Awesome. All right. And in the live chat, let's see, we've got Charlie Weld says, it's Aaron Kruger. It absolutely is Aaron Kruger. Travis Brown says, I've only seen one review, and that's of Halloween end, and I am, and I want to watch it no matter what and give my thoughts. Excellent. We're going to do that ourselves. Let's see, Mr. Andra uh, says, oh, enjoying Indian summer there, but winter is coming. It absolutely is. It's starting to cool off outside. Denova says, I try to avoid popular opinions, judge for myself. Always an excellent point. And then, of course, oh, Ronald Sam says, except for the monsters. Reviews were what I expected. Absolutely. Which is why we haven't really talked about that, because we already knew what was going to happen with the monsters. David Cernick is there. Good to see. It. <laughs> still I haven't either. Still haven't seen the monsters. I have no intention. I didn't know when he was going to be on Netflix. I was like, "That's on Netflix!" Like straight really. I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I have a four-pound hammer on the wall right there next to a steak. I would gladly <laughs> smash my testicles with that hammer before watching the monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking brutal. 
Oh, Dave Sertic is here. Good to see you. Dave says, hi, guys. Coming in to hang out. Good to see you. Thank you for the ghost. Sally Skeleton is in the chat. Good to see you, Sally. Thanks so much for hanging out. Sir Captain says, Pitch Black and the sequels are my favorite sci-fi franchise. They are excellent. Do love them. Uh, Travis Brown says, Hulu Hellraiser is good, but should not have been two hours. I didn't have a problem with the running time. Maybe it could have been shorter, but I loved the exposition. Thought it was fantastic. Nemo813 is here. Good to see you, Nemo. Thanks for hanging out. Tony Regime says, I'd rather see a movie that has average reviews and find it's better than expected than see a film with lots of hype that ends up being disappointing. Good point, Tony. Excellent point. And, and, and he laments that, damn, I don't have time to watch movies during the week. It, it, you know, it, it takes some scheduling. It absolutely does. Uh, let me see here. Sir Cabin says, I'm only halfway through Hellraiser. No fucking spoilers. We will not spoil anything for you. Because obviously moratorium on that one. Uh, let me see. Rodilla's name says, I really love the new puzzle box design in Hellraiser. It's cube configuration. I mean, excellent. Uh, yep, I'd love that too. Don't want to spoil too much. And then I see uh, Genova28 says, I'd put the new Hellraiser in my favorites list. Awesome. Tony Regime wants a remake of Cabal in Night Cabal or Nightbreed. I absolutely want one as well. And I know I'd like you mentioned. Finish it. Yeah, that's I'd like true. to finish it. They never finished the original. H. Jasper E's here says, Good morning. Good to see you, H. Jasper. Another one of our amazing supporters. Thanks so much. Travis Brown says, Clay, uh, Jamie Claymore. Jamie Clayton did a great job as uh, Pinhead. She absolutely did. Thought she was fantastic. Just, you know, two interpretations of the character. Doug Bradley and, and Jamie Clayton. And I thought that Jamie did phenomenally. So, and yeah, De, uh, DeNova says, Doug Bradley will always be Pinhead, but Jamie Clayton was downright intimidating. I loved it because... Doug Bradley's personality and his performance that that was was the was what solidified that was what solidified Pinhead as like kind of an icon. Jamie and you know played it as more she, it's, she's uh, that that character is a function of the dimension that they come from. So there's no real investment. There's no in, emotional investment there. She's not trying to be scary. She's just scary naturally. So presenting that as like this is simply what it is. You know, I don't need to be intimidating. I don't need to have an intimidating voice or anything of that or do intimidating things. I'm just, it's just scary regularly. So that, I love that. There they wasn't like a reliance upon that. It just naturally is. And I felt it yeah, just it, played so well. It's not an I am intimidating. It's very much an I am eventual. Right. Do what you will, this will happen. Mm -hmm. and, Angel Rivera is here. So, uh -huh. Go ahead. And that's something I've I've always liked about in terms of villains where it's like they're you can't you can't reason you can't reason with it you can't you can't really bargain you can't do anything they have their goal is just to serve their purpose their function and that's it they follow that plan and there's nothing you can do to drive them off that plan i like villains right yeah angel rivera's here good to see you. It says what up what up weekend horror hope you had a scary week it was kind of scary at some places but it was fun Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. And Travis Brown says, what's with the stamp on the new pinhead on her neck? If you actually look closely, it's not a stamp. It's actually a rod that goes clean through her neck. So because the if you look, because there's angles when she turns around and, and you can see the side, it actually goes clean through her. So, um, and they did that except, exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the whole structure of everything around the neck looks like a heightened priest collar if you really look because it's it's not quite the same as you know a catholic's priest collar square but it's got that geometric design focusing on that center because you can see it shine every time the light hits it and it catches your eye that is in itself brilliant uh yes. makeup the, the costume design 
the functionality of it was just amazing in how it played. Oh, I loved it. Oh, and I love that sequence when they, they grab the chick out of the van, string her up in that conversation. Oh, it was so good. So in line with Clive Barker's vision. Remember, and, remember, uh, no spoilers. Oh, yeah. Running Ellis' name says, so you could say that the Hellraiser series is, wait for it, sensational? Ah, uh, <laughs> I see what you did there, Rodent. <laughs> Age reverses. So this was a different take from the original movie. Yes, this one is more. Ins- it takes more inspiration from Clive Barker's original work. And Sir Cat says we can talk about it next year on with the show. Absolutely. <laughs> Travis Brown says Rob Zombie's The Monsters is becoming so bad it is good. That's not possible. Nope. That is. It's yes. I agree. De Nova. The new Monsters is becoming the old Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> At least the Mario Brothers movie is entertaining. <laughs> this is true. So before we jump on with the selections that we have tonight, the, uh, the, we're going to do a really, really quick update. So everybody in the chat knows that I am currently going for the Face of Horror contest. The Face of Horror contest is currently in its fifth round. The cuts to round... Actually, this is where things get kind of interesting. The next cut is for the finalists in this one. Now, I'm currently still in first position in my group. When they make the cut, in between, after they make this cut, there's going to be a little bit of a pause because they're going to do a little side thing, a little short round... For all of the people who came in second place in my in all their groups. So I won't be in that one. So if they're gonna make the cut tomorrow, I'm pro- probably gonna do a live stream just to, you know, when we watch the watch the clock flip. And then they're gonna start it up again on the 17th. But the big thing about this one is I have to be in first. In order to continue on and have a shot at the grand prize, I've got to be in first place for this round for the cut. And then we're going to pick it back up on the 17th of October and then continue on. And that point, when the 17th starts, they're going to start resetting the votes. That's a big thing. So once the uh, round starts on the 17th, which is after the little short round for all the all the people who came in second place in this round... When they start up 17th, they're going to reset votes to zero, and it's all going to start again. And then every round after that, for 7, 8, and 9, the final round, they're going to be resetting votes every single time. So, this is what's important. Get over there and vote, and I'm going to link it real quick. It's in the description, but I'm going to put it in the live chat in case you haven't had an opportunity. Bam! There's the link right there. You can pop over, and you can vote. So, I appreciate everybody's support in that. If I come in first in this one, I don't have to worry for a few days. And uh, we'll pick it up and just take it one round at a time. Can you, can you imagine if I take this thing home? It's going to be fucking sick. It's going to be sick. I fucking hear the end of it. <laughs> yeah, I am the face of horror, motherfuckers. <laughs> you are not. Listen to me. I have I such sights to show you. Movie. I think I, I will care how much it. of a director you are. <laughs> I am the face of horror. Look at me. Look at me. I am the face of horror now. <laughs> I think I... <laughs> the, the week in horror life, you know, the next one is just JL, and then we're like tiny in the bottom. My face. <laughs> I think it would cement. I think it would. I think it would cement our credibility, as I think is what it would do. I think that that would really be awesome if we could take this home. This pod, I think this podcast, everybody's podcast would totally benefit from this. It would be absolutely amazing. So. Don't, uh, this is true, wrote it in the last name. Don't count your puzzle boxes before they're solved. <laughs> I will not do that. I will not. So it's literally one round at a time. We'll take it one round at a time. As long as I keep coming in first, I'm golden. And I'm coming in first because of all of you. All of y'all's support and all of y'all's votes. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Look forward to the live stream that we do, the Face of Horror live stream that I'm going to do, where we kind of like catch up with it, watch the, uh, watch the timer flip, and then get those last-minute votes in. So good times. All right, so 
I guess we got some horror movies to talk about, don't we? Yeah, we I know Aaron's looking. Yes, we do. I, I know Aaron's looking forward to this first one, man. <laughs> That's the face of someone excited. October seven. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what do, have, 7th, what do we have? What first, bud? <laughs> October seventeenth, nineteen sixty-five. Sting of death. <laughs> Fucking stinks like death. <laughs> they never should have colorized this thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it looks like a calamity like fail video on it where or something was like kids say the darndest things or America's funniest videos. You're like with canned laughter like this movie sucks. Come check it out for this reason. Like <laughs> All right, let's see. Went too far. So, directed by William Greffe, written by William Kerwin, and starring Joe Morrison, Valerie Hawkins, John Bella, and Jack Nagel. And it is the story of a group of... They're supposed to be teenagers, I think, but they're really younger adults um, that gather together for a party at a house that's located in the middle of the Everglades because they're doing research there on various aquatic life. Um, and then a man manages to, I think this is old enough for spoilers, manages to turn himself into a jellyfish man and just start killing. And, um, yeah, I watched this the first 30 minutes at normal speed, jacked it up to about one and three quarter speed, and that's about right. This, this is an episode. <laughs> there is so much filler on this thing. It is painful. Yes, you you are correct, and it's funny because yes, Mister Antrad, jellyfish monster, what the fuck? And absolutely, you're 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 totally right. And I heard dogs actually with Neil Sedaka. It was like, what the hell? The wild thing is, Neil Sedaka does not appear in this film, even though he's in the fucking credits. They use one of his songs, but he doesn't actually appear in the in the movie anywhere, which is kind of a shame. It would have been it would have elevated this a little bit, but um, but yeah. So the mo- number one, like I said before, this movie should never have been colorized. In color, this thing is even worse. This could have played off of, you know, being black and white, like the poster, but a colorized version of this, just, no, this did not work at all. I should have watched it black and white, because when it was in color, I was laughing my ass off. Especially in the boat scene, when the boat capsizes, and, like, all the plastic bags that are, like, floating in the water that are supposed to be jellyfish. I was like, those are fucking plastic bags. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Solid black, and it still would have been a piece of shit. Color is not the determining factor. I'm sorry. When the monster finally shows up in the fucking bag on his head, it's a They spent all this time on the reveal, and then this just suddenly it's a guy in a spray painted scuba suit that looks like he's screaming to be saved from a fucking balloon. <laughs> Wrote in the last name says jellyfish. I'm floating right at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was it was just and not to mention, come on guys, he's wearing diver flippers, like it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's you can beyond. see his ankles you under between the, the flippers and the pants. Okay, so the, so the the big thing is <laughs> Denova says I would have sued to get my music removed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the, the wild thing about this one 
And the reason I want to bring it up is, one, it actually, it technically is a horror movie. It's a creature feature, is what it's designed to be. Even though it was absolutely ridiculous, way too much exposition, way too long, terrible, everything is just bad about it. But, the reason I want to bring it up, the reason I, you know, I included and wanted to talk about it is because of films like this, like Sting of Death, actually have a place in horror history. And it's something that a lot of people might not be aware of. And it's, it typically, this range is about the, like, the late 50s to the early 70s. And is one, like, this is an example of films that were once kind of like the vanguard of horror because of how horror films were marketed to the general public. And now, nowadays, it literally has gone from the vanguard to the stocks. Now, we just laugh. We do what we do. We just laugh at them. This MST3K fodder is what it is. You know, it's Elvira fodder. Joe Briggs. You know, and the whole point was, but these films used to be like the like the standard, and those are called and those were regional horror films, and those were important. Regional horror films have, have used to be the vanguard. Now they're in the stocks, but they're important because it goes to show the cultural acceptance and how horror has kind of been handled throughout film history. Yeah, well, it's like well, Roden, no last name, said the horror at at uh, Party Beach. <laughs> Yeah, so this is really a hybrid movie because you've got the rock and roll film influence, which, you know, they're, you know, the bands, because they have these really long dancing segments with the song on it. And um, there there were the, these various ones that had jazz influenced stuff, but they were generally rock and roll films, and they were mainly based on the music that could be recruited for it, and they would fail or succeed on it. The first couple of Amicus, or well, I think it was the second, third Amicus productions hammers leading competition were these rock and roll movies um and then you have also the beach party films you got muscle beach party and beach blanket bingo and all those that same thing with the dance sequences and the way that the kids that's quote unquote i'm like these people are damn near done medical degrees the kids <laughs> acted <laughs> and everything and they just like shoved some of this in there and that in there and then the horror movie and it's just like they were just playing around and i'm like you tried guys you tried and you failed <laughs> <laughs> well so when you sit there you think about it is horror a lot of times will piggyback off of what's popular at the time so when you have these rock and roll films that are popular elvis did about and these these beach party ones what is horror gonna do then to on top of it because that's what happened okay now let's take those same party kids and let's throw a monster in and see what happens instead of having like the guy and girl fall in love love it let's throw a monster and all this other kind of stuff and i mean ultimately it failed on the monster in a very epic Oof. epic way in epic so portion but yeah i mean even sitting there look at the trailer this includes dancing kind of thing because when people go oh that's a fun beach that's a fun beach party movie with a monster i want to go see it <laughs> that that was and i know that they were attempting to basically kind of you know convey this over glom onto what's popular in the mainstream in order to sell a a creature feature as essentially what was a regional horror film and that was the big thing is like this was an attempt in order to make what were regional horror uh, a regional horror film to be popular by glomming onto what was what was popular in the mainstream the, the kind of movies that were selling in you know in major major cities 
and that was the big thing is like during this time during the from the from the drive-in times when they would have double features and this film itself was a double feature it was released on a double bill with Greffe's film uh death curse of tartu that's a whole other ball of wax where we get into that one but the point <laughs> The, the, not get into that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the regional horror film is important in that regional horror films were generally were conceived, produced, and often distributed entirely in areas of the country that did not have access to like major theaters. So they would be like little drive-ins in the middle of nowhere. So it would be like the backwoods of Missouri or like, you know, the bayous of Louisiana or the rural areas of Utah. Small little drive-in areas that had very little impact on the ma- on the, the mainstream scene. So they, they would be small towns and small amounts of youth in these towns that would go and be, be driven to go see these films. And they wouldn't really see a release in other big areas because they wouldn't make any money there. So those little theaters that didn't get the big, that couldn't afford the big prints of the big popular films at the time would get these little tiny regional horror films that were like very similar to this one. And the problem with them, the reason we laugh at them now is because typically these films were, uh, they were so low budget that they really couldn't afford anything. So as obvious by this, as you know, you could see in this film. So the crews were tip the crews that were used to shoot them were typically local to the location that it was probably going to be released. And then the films themselves had amateurish to like no talent actors that they that, like people that lived in the area and they just kind of grabbed either from local theater or from just you know a basic casting announcement a local casting announcement and even the crews themselves had very little experience so there was no money being thrown into this to in order to in order to make these films and so that's why the exterior shots are all shot in the everglades like every exterior shot is in the everglades and all the interior shots were shot at the producer's house so, so they can get all the pool sequences and everything. And that's how you do it. That's how you made a quick, a quick, fast horror film back in the day. And then you throw in a little spice in order to make it kind of popular, which were all the, the music and the dance sequences, which are completely, you know, you look at them now, it's like, you know, fucking up your tranny. It's like, it's like, it's like you know, granny shifting on your uh, transmission. And it just feels so weird. It's weird to watch it now, but back in the day, this was... How horror got to people. This was like literally what the horror genre was back in those days. Back before we got like, you know, Psycho and the slasher genre dawned on us. Like these little creature features that were just thrown out there to small little theaters. Well, and they've got as a lure too, because you know, like all the, you know, guys talked about it. You've got one bare naked ass through a translucent shower door with some side boobs. So... Like, you were pushing the envelope back then with that because <laughs> oh. it was so psycho. Like, the fact that they showed a toilet, I'm like, I, at the time, I was like, I know it's it's got to be post-psycho if there's a toilet in it. Yeah. <laughs> and so Joshua Lee says, don't forget, scantily clad women. Oh, yeah, scantily clad women or women in bathing suits that are out there swimming and doing all that stuff. Oh, the, those kill scenes were so ridiculous. Although, I will give them this. The sequence at the very beginning, when the monster is dragging the, the girl that he's killed through the water, those were long shots, which means that girl was holding her breath and not moving and basically being a lifeless body in the water. But she was fully underwater, and the camera is like situated on her, which means they're, they're, they're tracking. It's tracking with her while he's dragging her by her hair. 
in the water. So obviously I'm thinking that something was probably pulling him and he had a hold of her and he was pulling her. There may have been something uh, attached to his arm that was able to support her. But she was underwater for quite some time. And some of those things were like 30 to almost, I would say almost 40 seconds and cuts. And that girl was like, and it was, I thought that was kind of impressive. Especially for the time. It was like, that's really dangerous what you're doing there. Is he getting these underwater shots, having this actress hold her breath. And I don't know if they would have the money to have scuba divers around there to assist if necessary. But, you know, I have to give him a little bit of credit for that. That was pretty inventive. Well, if you if you look, a lot of them, it kind of indicates they're in relatively shallow water. She's somewhat close to the surface. So I think part of it was he was helped along by being able to look like he was swimming, but push with his feet. I mean, it depends because they use a variety of different shots, but they show the one where, you know, um, she's being pulled along. It's the longest, like, cross shot on it. She's very close to the surface, so you know yeah, if it something goes wrong, she's just bang right up to the top in the heartbeat. But some of them, yeah, they were working close to the bottom. But you know, given the technology and the budget, that they may be working down by the bottom of the water, but it's got to be kind of shallow to get enough light down there um, right. because it's just got to have a certain amount of distance to penetrate. The one thing I, I, I give them is the fact that they were smart enough because I'm watching this and I'm like, they're going to have trouble with creative kills. It only has one method of killing. So it's not going to be hyper interesting. But they just killed the entire boatload of kids all at once. And I'm like, thank you, God. Every last one of them. So I don't have to suffer through a proto slasher with this damn thing. <laughs> so and you're watching, you're like, great, another kill. Great, another one. <laughs> Well, it, all they are is just him grabbing them. Ah, yeah, because it's just in the um, face. Ah. Yeah, Sir Kev says best actress in the whole damn movie, and they killed her in the first four minutes. Damn straight, <laughs> they absolutely did. <laughs> she was just like on the dock, and then she just couldn't afford her. Yeah, they couldn't <laughs> afford her. Okay, uh, Nemo eight thirteen says she was the swim team champion at her high school. That's why she got hired. So yeah, this it, and of course, so in color is not the way to watch this movie. It's absolutely goofy, and because in color you could see all the things that they are wrong. Black and white would have been much better as a presentation. What we watched, the color version was actually re-released by uh, by Arrow. Arrow has the the rights to it. They did a restoration of the film, and so that's the the version that I watched. The original version was that was released to theaters back in '65 was in black and white. So this was a new one. The black and white one, I was not able to find. So unfortunately, I was forced to watch the Arrow restoration, and it was just absolutely terrible. The only reason this, that films like this are important is because they they're kind of like a kind of like a uh, mile marker in the history of the horror genre in this country. How horror went from big studio stuff like you know the Universal monsters, and then all of a sudden in America, kind of slid off. And only the really, really top-notch one with really well-named actors, and there weren't that many of them, got theatrical releases in major in major cities. Whereas this one, well, how does it get... And you can kind of see, which I thought, found was interesting, you can kind of see the influence of these films on small towns and how they accept their horror and why certain levels of horror are acceptable to small towns and small communities and it's different from major metropolitan areas and their acceptance of what horror is because major metropolitan areas really dig the uh, they they want actors they want you know solid performances they want good special effects and they want something that is artistic that's really artistic and really well thought out the low budget stuff 
was seminal to small towns, and that's why that kind of accepts it. So I like that dichotomy in how horror was presented to the to the nation as a whole, and how we can now see that today in our in the forms of entertainment that we enjoy. So kind of informs that. I found that to be really really intriguing. Yeah, I uh, it's it's kind of like you said, it's a step along the way, and it's something we discussed in uh. With how to make a monster, it's just the the tail end of the creature feature era too, where it's going downhill. Even within horror, we're going more psychological horror, so um, they're just kind of spicing it up with stuff like with heavily covered bikini ass. Rodan, the last name says, would the color palette they chose for the colorization be the Austin Powers? Yeah, it probably would be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh. All right. So the question we have for the audience, what is your favorite regional horror film? You can let us know at weekendhorror at gmail.com. You can drop it in the live chat or in the comments below. Um, this one actually is going to be a really tough one, I think, for people, because it turns out when I was researching this, this covers a ton of ground. It does. Like stuff we now think of as major because the whole nation knows of them were technically regional horror. The first release, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was regional horror. Didn't know that. I didn't know Very that cool. Regional horror, major, major player in the horror, and really informed the country's idea of what horror was and why certain aspects of certain tropes, certain horror tropes, became popular because of regional horror. Which I thought was really impressive. So, because a few people would be like, would be just like, well, why a film like this? Why is it get made? There's a reason, and they had to get these films out to somebody, and they were making them locally. And this, this is this is essentially how independent films really kind of got out there. Because little small little budget. I mean, for for this, the monster, the monster in this, the jellyfish monster in Singing Death, cost three hundred dollars to make, and took two weeks to put together. So it was like a three hundred dollar suit. And essentially, it's a wetsuit with a bunch of... I thought, I swear to God, I thought there were Mardi Gras beads hanging off of the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> seriously did. But, three, you know, $300, you know, a, you know, costume. Two weeks to put it all together and make sure it's all good. And then you put it out there and the budget on this is so low, no, no major theater is going to touch this. So you got to put it out somewhere, little tiny drive-ins in the middle of nowhere. Especially in Florida where this one was shot. So... I can have you that for fifty dollars tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. All you need is a clear hefty bag to be the to be the yeah. jellyfish. <laughs> you, just, you gotta cover over the th the warning label that says do not place overhead. <laughs> <laughs> just cover just orange duct tape. <laughs> All right. So, Eugene, what do we got next? All right. Next up, we have It's Alive, which was released October 18th, 1974. Roll it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you respond to a bit. I said get off the water heater. This is the last time I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. You have It's Alive, directed by Larry Cohen, starring John P. Ryan, 
Sharon Farrell, James Dixon, William Wellman Jr., Seamus Locke, Andrew Duggan, Guy Stockwell, and Michael Arnesna? Something like that? That's close <laughs> enough. Michael and Sara. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Michael, Michael and Sara. Yeah, with that one. The, the, the and I mean, ruined me, man. <laughs> I'm seeing it myself. <laughs> and basically, what it is is you have a couple, and their second son turns out to be a mutant. And in a way, according to the police, shit gets real. It, it kind of does. It absolutely it does. does. <laughs> Your baby is a big one. Probably 12 pounds. <laughs> Holy shit. God, when he's doing the exam or doing the questionnaire on her, they left off the part, the portion where he was talking to her about possibly aborting the child. And they're like, and you canceled that? And they get mad. And I'm like, what the fuck do you think happens when you try to abort a kid? I'm like, did he come out with a coat hanger in its head for fuck's sake? It's a monster. <laughs> it's a monster. <laughs> Oh, so Travis, yeah, the, the live chat's cracking us up. Travis Brown says, it's alive, it's alive, weird science, ooh, Angel Rivera says, it's alive and bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> Sally Skellington says, what is it, anybody? <laughs> yeah, it was a baby, is what it was. Well, technically, it was a monster baby. Um, but yeah, it's alive, definitely. And Nemo813 says, I remember when this released in theaters. Oh, yes, and Sir Captain says, that 30-second promo spot with the bassinet and the claw scared the absolute crap out of me. I was five at the time and went 53 years without watching the cause, uh, watching this cause of that trauma. I get that, yeah, the poster with the claw kind of like coming out of the bassinet is really kind of freaky. But, um, well, there, was, says, there was a beach, there could have been bikini dancing, but no, <laughs> not in this one. And the reason, oh, Sally's going to says, I'll pass on this one too. Actually, this one's not bad. Okay, now my my co-hosts are shaking their heads. It's I not bad, that... but I'm not. I'm just what, the reason I'm laughing is just because of the commentary from the freaking <laughs> peanut gallery it needs and that one shot with the revolver. I'm like, just too much at once. The, the wild thing is that they have the scene where the cops come around. They're like, ah, oh, like, like guns at the camera, and they don't. They they cut away from it. But the next is that it was an actual like baby. Like a normal baby that was like sitting on the ground, like uh, and it's like guns in its face. This shit was hilarious. So the, okay, so the big thing about the the film is not terrible, and no sarcasm. It is not bloody awful. Oh, the plot hole is in the chat. No, it says hello I'm everyone in the land of in the land of live music. Taking a break, editing. It's in flames and Meshuggah with the wife, daughters, cheers. Trivia answer is definitely going to be this answer here. No, it's not. So, but sarcasm. It's not bloody awful. Okay, so. The reason the film, the reason this film is solid, is because of director Larry Cohen. Okay, so we've talked about Larry Cohen's films before. We we uh, we had Q, The Winged Serpent, on this, and a, and a few other ones as well. So we I know we've had Q, The Winged Serpent, and God Told Me To, and the stuff. So Larry Cohen's work is unique, and you, Larry Cohen is a unique director because Cohen had throughout all of the films you can see Cohen has the unique ability as a director. And as a, as, a, as a writer to write intriguing plots, but as a director to pull together elements, all the right elements to make a production solid. So it's all the little bits and pieces that make this thing really, really good. And obviously, you know, 
if those pieces weren't there, this film would have fallen flat. Number one, they don't really show the baby all that much. They show it in, in glimpses because it probably didn't look very good in reality. But everything the way they do it, it is done exactly the way it needs to be done. And, and that can only be done under the direction of Larry Cohen. As you see in movies like The Stuff and you see in movies like Q, The Winged Serpent and God Told Me To, he only shows what is necessary in order to service the plot. And this one is not so much about the baby. It's it's so much about the journey of the fa of journey of the parents, the mom and the dad. That's what this story is focused on. And then the idea that the plot being that what we can all relate to is the things that we cannot control about our children when our children are born. The kind of like the things we take on ourselves. It's not anybody's fault that the child came out came out a monster. Now that's the hyper the hyperbole of the horror film. But when a child comes out with say autism or Down syndrome or something occurs along those lines, that's nobody's fault. That's just what happens. And we follow the parents. Cohen is so smart in this. We follow the parents as they internalize what has happened. And we follow the dad who initially the mother is like, it's my baby, it's my baby. But the dad is like, oh, it's no son of mine. I'm like this until faced with it. And then he's overcome with the fact that, yeah, despite its monstrous appearance and behavior, this is still your son. And so we get to walk along the journey. So this is all about the parents, not so much about the monster itself. And it's a hyperbolic look at the things we can't control and the kind of anxieties and the fears we have about having kids and the things that can happen that no matter what you prepare for, something can go wrong, something could come out not the way you expected, and you could be surprised in a tragic or a or a, a negative way, and you just, as parents, these are the risks you take. So I loved that that was the focus. If the focus had been on the monster, this thing would have fallen flat, absolutely. But Cohen was smart enough to make it about the parents and not about the monster itself, reflecting what we can all uh, relate, or reflecting what we can relate uh, to. Yeah, and, well, the thing about Cohen, too, is it's what we kind of talked about before with Frank Hennenlauter and Abel Ferrara is the fact that he works really well with what he has available um, because even that era, you did not have as great a color range or as great a depth available with your film. He had less than optimal film, even. He wasn't getting the, the highest price off the shelf, but he actually worked really well with that. There's a certain amount of ugliness to right. the visuals. I mean, you look at the interview with his boss when he goes in, he's talking to him about it. That boss is covered in sweat, and you're like, right. that guy just hogged down an eight ball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they, um, he works really well with that, and he doesn't try to pretty up the characters too much. They're very average-looking people, average-looking settings not glitz and glamour and it really if you take it i the remastering on this too much bringing it to too high a depth would be really bad for it honestly mm. because it's just like it, we mentioned it with um i think the prime one was texas chainsaw massacre really ugly film thought film stock um kind of not sloppy but rough angle stuff like that if you took it took that away i think it would do a disservice to what is happening right but the um when if you read like so the novelizations on it focused more on what was going on with the pharmaceutical company which i was surprised there was a novelization on that but there's a little behind that too 
Um, but focus more on what's happening with the, you know, the drug and everything else. But like you said, he was smart for what he ignored. I don't know if that was kind of part of their intention. They ditched it or not, but not going with that too much, too far was a really great idea. Um, like you said, sticking with the mom and dad, but initially, so I think the trailer you showed, they released the sucker in 74. It did really poorly. They re-released in 77. They got smart, did a different marketing campaign. I think they did different trailers. I know they did a different poster. Um, and they they just marketed it completely differently, and it hit big. Yeah. So that he was talking about seeing the hand out of the bass, and that, that was part of that, that poster that blew it up. It, it kind of ripped of off of Rosemary's. It kind of ripped off of Rosemary. The imagery of Rosemary's Baby, which oh, was yeah. hot at the time, so it was like, ah, this is kind of in the same. And it kind of is story wise in the same vein as Rosemary's Baby. But in this respect, it kind of used that same imagery in the marketing, and it, that that's and hey, you got to glom on what works. If something is working out there, yeah. make it your you know use it, make it your own, but run with it. Yeah, the only other thing it reminds me of was the rabbit from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because it's just this baby that's like, eh, <laughs> the the, 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 <laughs> ki the the kicker on this one is, like I said, it's all the little pieces that came together. So you've got music by Bernard Herrmann, who was well-known, uh, well well-versed. So you have a solid scoring. You have excellent cinematography. I thought that everything was caught. The fact that Cohen decided to show the baby very little and put the focus on the parents, just like... Uh, Rosemary's Baby, where the focus was on the mother and what was going on around her instead of on the child itself. You had Rick Baker's effects, because Rick Baker was uh, working on Exorcist at the time and then was called up by Cohen to come and do the baby. And so he made the baby, the physical baby that, uh, you know, and it was a pretty decent little articulatable model with movable eyeballs that you could, and then of course a mask for the close ups. And so Rick Baker working on this. You got Rick Baker. You've got Bernard Herman. You've got Larry Cohen directing. You've got a decent story, and I th and I love the light and of course the lighting and the sound were really really well done, really well captured. The baby was freaky as shit, especially at the time that this came out. It would have been freaky as hell. The I can understand why they did the weird camera, the weird like the Eugene. What do they call that? When they they have two images, they kind of like overlay them, but it's it's like off in order to give the kind of weird perspective, because they use that for the I, baby in order to obfuscate the baby how kind of terrible it looked. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's just the same thing. It's just kind of an overlay kind okay. of thing. I mean, yeah, there's there's fancy term like for superimposition. it. So, yeah, so and I understand why they were doing this, and I I dug it. It's all the little pieces that he put together. Not to mention where they were shooting. And you go from, and that's what I dug is that you have different. Every single area has its own kind of has its own specific atmosphere that was specifically created. So the hospital is has kind of like this strange alien, sterile kind of environment to really emphasize the 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 medical side of that, where it's not really um, inviting. And it has this very sterile, very kind of this very clinical to, to maximize the clinical atmosphere of the hospital. At the home, it's very warm, it's very cozy. Everything is, you know, it's it's very um, very familiar. Outside in the neighborhood, it's all this washed out pastel, which really serves to uh, bring the characters to life as living people amongst a kind of like fake and bullshit background, which I love. And then, of course, moving from that from this kind of like washed out kind of color to the dark danks of the LA uh, sewer system off of the LA reservoir. So I, th the way he frames each particular area was really, really smart and lent itself to how we're moving through the story. 
and how we're going from the color down all the way down to the darkness of the final climax. Uh, when the baby does the blah and, you know, rabbits at uh, the play, rabbits at the detective and everything. So, I, and then, of course, then the little cliffhanger ending at the end. Another one was born in Seattle. Like, this is happening all over the place. But uh, only because of Larry Cohen. The Larry Cohen, the Larry Cohen effect does this work. The same thing was done in Q, the Winged Serpent, how the focus was on Michael Moriarty's character instead of on the monster. The monster was secondary to the story. It's all about Michael Moriarty's thief. And how he's trying to capitalize on this shit. Oh, by the way, Quetzalcoatl is literally flying around the fucking city eating people. But no, it's about Michael Moriarty's character. It, like same with God Told Me To. It's not about the psychic stuff and all this. It's about the cop who's investigating that shit. Okay, the same with Michael Moriarty and the stuff. It was all about Michael Moriarty and the people around him. And I think, and, uh, and the reporter that was with him investigating it. That's why more that's why Cohen stuff works is because he makes it relatable. He says these are extreme situations, but let's talk about the people that are involved. The focus isn't, shouldn't be the monster. It should be we how we react to the monster. Cohen captured society is, the best way in the best way possible, I think. I mean, that's the, that's the way it's supposed to be. If you're mm. not unless you were doing a slasher, because if you think most of the islands are ones of Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy Cougar, and so forth and so forth on it. Any other type of horror film focused on the characters that's just the that's just the way it is people will go and they'll sit there and they'll go and they'll watch nightmare on elm street for freddy cougar that's who you want to see you want to see freddy cougar who cares about who cares about the other people that he goes and kills it's always about freddy cougar but following the same vein when you're making a horror film focus on your characters on it unless you're doing an focus on your characters because that's the way it should be on it it should be that's what drives in it that's what makes you care right on it that's why when we're sitting there we're talking about the sting of death oh, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> who cares <laughs> who cares about any of them <laughs> for the scuba diver it kind of it kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with hellraiser the original version of hellraiser had the Cenobites as a primary feature, and they were the big scary thing. Although in the original story, that's not the way they are. This is all about Christy Cotton's story. It should have been that, but she was kind of secondary to like the the visual appeal or the uh, the visual spectacle of the Cenobites themselves. Whereas the new one focuses more on the character development, and the Cenobites are secondary to that plot. They're just functions of what is going on around them. That's why I dig Cohen's work, and I'll, I'll always like in his stuff because he has a real grasp. Cohen always had a real grasp for of capturing the drama that occurs between us in extreme situations, which is exactly what horror should be. And I will say this: there was a lot of kind of drafting off of Rosemary's Baby. This, and I will say that John P. Ryan, John Ryan's performance in this. He was channeling some serious Gregory Peck, man. There were some moments there where I was kind of like, it was like, okay, come on, man. You saw Rosemary, or you saw, like, fucking The Omen. And you have these moments where you're like, I have to do this as the father. This is my responsibility. And he had, like, these, these kind of moments like, oh, man, you're pulling, you're just like, you're really, but he sold it. And he was good. A little on the misogynistic side. The way he treated his wife, I think the the, the smacking around kind of thing is just a. I think it's a little just. That's just. It's just a little bit. Just what he. <laughs> well, that's the era too. I mean, because he was he was smart about how he tapped in national consciousness because this 
was around the time of the thalidomide scare. They were having other issues um, with medications, <clears throat> and probably the people that the general public worries about most are pregnant women. Um, but hospitals, they were still coming out of a period where what you did is you got there, you said bye to your wife, you got your ass to the waiting room, they knocked her out and delivered the kid, and then you all met up later, basically. Yeah. Um, so they kind of really played on how the, um, at that the beginning part, how the medical industry was very separate from how we really kind of bond as a family and stuff to set it up really well. And like I said, he didn't harp on it, um, but he he used it to initiate the action. And it's like you were saying with Hellraiser, the original, he was smart about it. And this is a nice thing, too, about not being hugely studio-backed is the original Hellraiser, Julia, the stepmother, was supposed to be the big bad, but test audiences like Pinhead more. Same thing, main audiences, and that's who they let drive it. They let the almighty dollar drive it, right. and they sacrificed a big chunk of what was charming about it, whereas he is in a market where he doesn't have to worry as much about that, and he took advantage of it to the most. And yeah, Sarcasm is correct. Sarcasm's comment says, Another was born in Seattle was an undisguised shot at the birth control pill that became so popular during next wave feminism. And you are correct. There is a lot of so there's a lot of subversive social commentary throughout it, but that's prevalent in all of Cohen's work. Cohen essentially was following the same formula as Romero. There's always some form of social commentary running through his uh running through his films. It's really apparent in movies like uh, God Told Me To and Cue the Winged Serpent because all of those focus on corruption. They have, they have subplots of corruption in the police force. You can't trust anybody. The one good cop or people trying to do good and then they, there's always bureaucracy above them. He focuses on these little, and uses them as like, this is the environment we live in. And when extreme things happen, like like a giant winged lizard flying around friggin' New York or a monster baby is born then we can see how these things really come out to play in this kind of hyperbolic environment, which is what I think just makes his stuff really, really smart. The same thing went with the stuff, how the stuff comes out. It's literally a fucking monster, yet corporations, because, it, you know, mm, it tastes sweet, they're going to try and fucking market that shit, which is insane to me, but actually kind of believable in the world we live in, you know? So yeah, the stuff was all about commercialism. I love his, I love his undercurrents. Cohen had had his finger kind of on the pulse, and I wish he'd I wish he'd been given more money to work with, and really be able to do something. But you know, when you're poking fun at some of the big you know big things in the country, like this one was poking pokes fun at big pharma, like you know it's like ah uh, you know we're fucking with thing we're fucking with nature and shit like that. I can get why people would be like oh, I don't really put my name on that as far as giving him money, but you know we haven't so. <laughs> so more like cue the winged Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I would say I would agree. Because there was some bad fucking cops in that shit. It was like, hey, that's not exactly kosher what you're doing there, Mr. Uh, officer. But, hey, it's, that was a reality. Cohen really captured it. See, I think it would have hurt him to have more of a budget, honestly. I think it would have, one, it would have changed yeah. the aesthetic. But, two, it also would have put him in a different market. Right. See, I agree. I was thinking the same thing. Like, sometimes having a bigger budget isn't necessarily a good thing because it forces you to solve problems that you can just throw money at. And so, you know, maybe if maybe if it's like, oh, if we had more money, we could design a better 
uh, baby monster, and then we showcase it more, and then ruins the big thing that, right. that, that we're just talking about. You it know, drives and, away from the story that makes it important, right? It, yeah, exactly. You know, what, how come we don't see the shark very much in Jaws? Because the shark didn't work. And that's one of the best <laughs> things. <laughs> it's simply, and that's why one Jaws. You don't see the But shark. the lack of shark gives us excellent character development between Brody and Quint and I can never remember Richard Dreyfuss' character's name. Um, I can never, obviously, fucking Brody and Quint, those are obvious, but R Richard Dreyfuss' character, the three of them together. If the shark had worked appropriately all the time, we probably never would have gotten that boat scene of just the three yeah, of them together. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's one of the things that really it put him together. I remember one of my favorite moments is him talking about the USS Indianapolis and how right. it went down. The way he says that, it's just, just, that's just a haunting portrayal. Like, it's believable that he was there. But as we digress on to, from a different movie. Yes, Sarcasm says, turd sufficiently polished. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to ask the audience, what is your favorite It's Alive franchise entry? There, because there are four films in this franchise. Yeah, I was like, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of them on there, and we, this is the first one we've talked about so far, isn't it? Okay. Yes, yes, we, we've only touched on the yeah, first one. On it. Mm -hmm. on it. So this there's four, the... there's four entries. Yeah, yeah there's the, the original trilogy. There's the, yeah, there's the original trilogy, and then there was a remake done. That was, it was a remake done, and in the remake, they really kind of they they leaned hard into the the gore and the horror and the the, the nasty elements. They and they kind of like. The, the whole, like, subplots and the other thing, that went to the wayside. Because they just wanted to make an extreme horror film about a, a mutant killer baby. <laughs> See, this is one that, that... The death of the mom-and-pop VHS shop. Right here, what the plague that was. Because the one that we originally went to had deep stocks of horror movies going way back. And they closed down because, you know, the big names moved in. The big one we had around here that's cheap was far more... Um, it was Pharmacy More. They had a rental shop inside of something similar to Walmart. And they just it was the newest stuff. You didn't catch it new. You didn't catch anything. And that's just still, every time I think about I can smell that rental store every time I think about <laughs> it. I miss it so much. Tony Regimes. Oh, oh, thank you. Angel Rivera says, Richard Dreyfus was Matt Hooper. Thank you for this. So Hooper. Hooper, Quentin, Brody. I'll commit it to memory. So I... Don't yeah. why, I don't know why it always escapes me. Sir Cabs, Richard oh, Dreyfus is Richard Dreyfus in everything he does. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> Tony Regime says, technically polishing a turd is possible. You just need to leave it long enough to fossilize and turn to copper light. Oh, there you go. Oh, that that Sir, is very true. Very true. Scientifically accurate. And Sir Cabs says, I've only watched just the original and the remake, and the remake was crazy bad without the great commentary. So, yeah, I wouldn't recommend the remake, but the trilogy was kind of interesting. All right. So, what we have next... And this was a good, this one was a surprise. This one surprised me. Released October twenty second, two thousand twelve. We have the psychological slasher film Casadaga or Casadega. Supernatural uh, psychological slasher film. Supernatural psychological slasher film. Yeah, Casadega. <laughs> Let's check out this trailer. Why have they got to do the title like it's a fragrance? <laughs> 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 Casadega by Poilywood. So yes, God, <coughs> God dang, 
Oh, when you make me laugh sometimes, yeah. But Casa Dega, um, uh, directed by Anthony DiBlasi, and of course, uh, written by Bruce Wood and Scott Poiley, and starring Kellen, Col- uh, Kellen Coleman, Kevin Alejandro, Luis Fletcher, the legendary Luis Fletcher, Amy Cicero, Russ Blackwell, and Sarah Skulko. So the film follows uh, the, our character Lily, who... Um, after losing her uh, adopted, uh, it's, it's her sister, but she's a guardian. She's the official guardian of the sister after their mother passed away. But after losing her daughter or her sister, uh, decides to relocate to Casadega for herself, kind of like ref- you know, kind of find herself again out of the trauma, and winds up embroiled in a essentially the machinations of a serial killer that is operating in the area called Geppetto, and uh, gets pretty. I would, I would say shit, shit kind of gets real in this one. It really does. Um, it has its moments, yeah. It definitely has its moments. I will say <laughs> that... I will I will say this. So, Anthony de Blasi, um, I've, I first came across him when I screened Dread back in 2009. Actually, I think it was 2008. And it was at Texas Frightmare Weekend. And so I got to see Dread, and I think Dread was released as a part of the... Uh, the um, Eight fil- the the films to die the after dark horror horror fest uh, eight films to die for and so and it's based off of Clive Barker's work so I've been aware of him since Dread and then of course this was his second film and then uh, he was a producer on Midnight Meat Train and uh, the Plague and Book of Blood but Casa uh, Dega was surprisingly good I was I kind of went into it I was like uh, I don't know about this but really solid acting really good you know well shot. I this one's pleasant. I was pleasantly surprised. Aaron apparently did not like it at all. But um, and one thing I will say this because so often we see big names. Okay, when we see like when we talked about uh, Camp Coldbrook and Danielle Harris was brought in for Camp Coldbrook and she was just brought in just because of the name itself. I can't stand it when when icons or like legendary actors are brought in just for name recognition or to give it some sort of oomph. What was what was cool was Louise Fletcher. The legendary Louise Fletcher, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, so many, so many other productions, was not brought in to give this thing any real, any real weight. Louise Fletcher wanted to do the film because the lead character, the primary character, Lily, is deaf, and the concept of that was is intriguing her because Louise Fletcher has deaf uh, people in her family, and so she loved the idea of the final girl of the strong woman, this being deaf and overcoming the disability in order to overcome the killer, and. Using that, what we would see as a weakness, as a strength. She loved that concept, and she wanted to be a part of the production. So she's she's not used for that weight, which I thought was cool. And she was good. It wasn't a throwaway role. And it wasn't just like, oh, Louise Fletcher's being used for exposition. No, I loved her character. As small as it was, it worked. And I was pleasantly surprised. I enjoyed this. Not to mention the first five minutes blew my fucking mind. It was like, that's an extreme way to open up a film and... I don't know if we can really say too much about it because it's, so, it's, it's kind of graphic. But Aaron, but Aaron is correct. This was a polarizing offer. You either enjoyed it or you did not. Yeah, I and there there were things about this that were great. The acting was really good. Even the mechanics of the writing were really good at the beginning. Like you're descri- you're describing it. it sounds like my family's tree. It's like. My my sister daughter got murdered. Now she, <laughs> you get in one conversation in the car where their situ what their situation is because it evolves very quickly. Where you're like you think, okay, 
well, they've shown she's a teacher. Maybe she's a student. Um, and then they they keep going from there, where they develop on that, where you learn that, okay, it's her little sister. Maybe it's the big sister, little sister program. But then the single mention of the word mommy, where she relates it in a way that's common to both. Okay, these are blood sisters, and they've lost their mom. Really good way to lay out the exposition and dialogue really quickly. Gets it out of the way, gets you where you need to be. They do good acting. I mean, even the scene setups are really good. My problem is the fact that this is a melange film where they have taken too many things from too many other films and just shoved them in because they've got your your hyper-successful serial killer films where they're putting people together. Let's throw that in. Oh, we got a, a haunting film. Let's throw that in. Well, we got some psychic stuff. Let's throw that in. And it, it deserves it. Honestly, they could probably stripped out some stuff, and it would have made it better in my opinion, um, because they would have had to develop a deeper plot rather than trying to get so much in. It's not bad. It's mediocre. Like somebody said, you know, the scent of mediocrity in the chat. It's, it's that, you know, it had bad, it had a bad spine, so it's it, the rest of its bones were flopping around like the jellyfish from the first movie. Um, they... Uh, it could they, if they had gone and done the foundation right. I think it would have been a good movie, a really good movie. But I don't think they put that in correctly before they started developing on it. You see, that's the thing is, and I it pulls from too many genres on it. So when it's like a oh okay, it's a supernatural feel. Oh oh wait, it's just a serial. Oh wait, it's a a, a beyond. Kind of thing. it just kind of it kind of throws you off because each one of the genres has its own roots that you want to leave you want to leave in and you want to develop because those are the things we're looking at for of uh, for example like a supernatural film you're looking for obviously it's going to be a little bit more creepy because we have some obviously like some jump scares we have to have them but a lot of them will have jump scares and it's a whole supernatural feel when you look at things like in the ring um but it's kind of like take like insidious right which is a great film and then you find out it's just a serial killer it's it's kind of it's, uh wait what okay on it so it's just i i agree with aaron i wish it kind of stuck a little more to one like it's, it's not a bad film it definitely has some great effects on it and like i said the extreme scene with the boy and i'll just leave that just right. that <laughs> yeah you, you can watch it for yourself if you want to see what happens um on it well, I they, wish, say, I wish they just, say grab him yeah. in the first five minutes so oh yeah oh, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I, I watched it i was like all right you have my attention <laughs> you have my it's just like oh we're going in that direction yeah. oh my goodness <laughs> So that that's the that was the big thing of this, and yes, you you are right. It does pull of a lot of it pulls from a lot of elements. At first, it starts out you know you got the drama element of the of uh, Lily and her sister. And then it starts off with with her death, and that that gives our character drive. So they kind of fridged her sister in that respect in order to move the character on. And so then you have the setup. Casadega is actually a place that that li- exists. It's a little unincorporated uh, kind of commune town sort of like village of essentially which is like the psychic capital capital of the world and so it's a legitimate place they went out there and they they shot out there and then of course it moves from that into a ghost movie into a serial killer movie into i guess the end was kind of 
action respect you know in that respect so it does take a little bit there's even some i even recognized it uh as far as script wise goes the writer uh the writers pulled a line from half baked in this and that's when louise fletcher is smoking a uh, smoking a joint um she's like it's you know it, it helps with my glaucoma and it's not too bad for my arthritis either and i'm like you straight stole that from half baked it's like come on guys but i will say this what drives this one was the really really good acting? I thought I've, I've uh, Kellen Coleman. I first ran into her. I first saw her when she was on Scandal, and then re- recognized that she was in this. I was like, quite because she's a very talented actress. Never overwrought. Never oversold. Went through it, and I liked that the moments where she was supposed to be big were perfectly timed. She was well acted. And the it was the acting in this is the one that got me. Nobody was too much or over or like you know over the top. So nobody oversold it. So I could follow the characters and they never like pushed me out of my uh, suspension of disbelief. So I liked that. The script, the script was serviceable. It had a good story and a cohesive story. Each element that you bring up, all those different things they pulled from, I think got equal time. And I think, in my opinion, created a positive feedback loop where one aspect ran into the next aspect and ran into the next aspect to set up this eventual climax where, you know... Uh, we get to the final showdown with the serial killer, with the Geppetto killer. I was well, a little, one... in, I was a little, I was gonna say, I was a little annoyed if you stay till the end of the credits. There's the actual after credit scene, and I thought that that was kind of ridiculous because it sets it up for, I guess, universe building or a sequel. Which I thought was just silly. It's like, oh, now all of a sudden she's got the powers and shit like that. But oh, Sir Cab says the blind psychic was over the top. That's just character. I just, you know, character actor. You know, it's just one of those things in order to sell the moment. But nonetheless, I think it pulled equally from all things. It made them work. It was a serviceable film. It was, what I'm saying, it's not the best, but it absolutely was, given everything, given everything that went into it, it was way better than I thought it was going to be. Well, part of that's the fact that they haven't marketed in place as well as they have, because when you search for it, it's already getting slammed by the fact that Casa Dega is popular as a psychic destination. So there's tons of businesses coming up too. Um, and then you know Google's done them wrong because you can get you can rent it on YouTube, and they don't list that when you search it. At least it didn't come up for me. Um, but I, I've noticed that too because we noticed that with Malevolent, you are far more tolerant of a genre shift mid movie than I am because they shift <laughs> on me and I'm like, you stole from me and you're just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, it's like, how are they going to make this work? Like, how are they going to do it? And you know, they, yeah, it's true. You know, uh, bloody disgusting did pan on it. Dread Central actually praised the film. Like I said, this is a polarizing film. It's unique in that respect it's like you're either gonna like it or you're not gonna like it at all and that's kind of the strength and weakness this is this is niche horror is what it is it's going to play to small to, to like to small pockets of the horror genre genre fans are gonna really dig it but anybody who's kind of like an a kind of overall just horror fan likes scary stuff likes very specific things it's like they like their their scares like if i want to see jump scares i go and see jump scares if i want to see supernatural horror i go and see that Genre fans are going to dig it because they're going to say, "Oh, it's good. It's all the best parts of like it's like all the best parts of the of the buffet," but it's going to turn some people off, just like you. But that that is the risk that you take with with uh, niche with niche horror like this. It's like it's a risk, and I like risk taking. I like that they they did that. They didn't make it commercialized. They told the story they wanted to tell in the way that they wanted to tell it. That's part of the risk of doing that. And if you're not willing to take risks as a filmmaker, then what the fuck are you being a filmmaker for? See, and it's it's not a matter of, of risk for me. It's just like 
I I I like depth, and that's I I feel when you stick with a genre like a single subgenre or certain set of elements, and you develop upon those, you get more depth. I think when you shift, all of a sudden it's like developing a new tone and new depth, mm -hmm. and that's where I kind of get hinged. Now, if you want to go stick with one, and you want to get fucking like, uh crazy with it and do something completely out there i'm down for that but like the second you a ghost picks up a knife i'm like all right shit i quit i'm gone bye <laughs> <laughs> well because a lot of it when it comes with these genres it's about the payoff on it because these genres have the setup it's just watching a slasher film oh well the teens are lake or the everglades what are you watching for you're watching for you are watching for the killer to start slashing teenagers and slashing college kids and then they have the final girl in the conference and it's just like it doesn't matter who wins but it's like imagine hey okay, we got the teens and they're at the lake and we established that they're not sure and he's ready to kill and all this other kind of stuff and then all of a sudden a spirit comes out of nowhere and a teen gets possessed and then, out of nowhere, zombies show up. <laughs> well, that's just Deus Ex Machina the film, man. <laughs> and it never goes back to the ever again. <laughs> right. And the like I said, hero. Yeah, like I said, it does pull for a bunch. I agree with Aaron with Aaron on that one, but I think that was one of the that was one of the things that kind of like I'm a genre fan, and I like that they pulled from different things. They tried to make them, and they they I think they honestly they made them work. It's not as bad as it could have been, and I think what solidified this was the performance was it was very very well cast. So smartly done in that. Anthony DeBlasi does really really good. If you go back and watch Dread, his first film, that thing was phenomenally cast because Dread was about. Um, essentially a film project about film students trying to figure out what people were afraid of. And that one was a deep, deep psychological horror and how the, the, the film experiment or the film project essentially begins to reflect back on their own lives and trigger un, you know, uh, deep-seated terror or deep-seated dread that they have themselves. Really, really fucked up shit in that movie, but really strongly done. I really enjoyed it. And I like that he, he's not willing to sit in one place that he will take what kind of interests him and try to pull it all together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's, like I said, the perils of niche horror. Sometimes you can sell it, sometimes you don't. So because this film is so polarizing, and because, you know, many outlets were completely split on whether or not this, you know, whether they enjoyed it or not, I want to ask the audience. So really, really simple. For, uh, for Casadega, thumbs up or thumbs down? Did you like it or did you, uh, did you not like it? Which where, where which side of the aisle did you fall on this one? I just kind of curious as to how many people dug it, and how many people really did not. Let us know in the live chat or down in the comments below, or of course at weekendhorror at gmail.com. All right, Aaron. I think okay. So so Joshua Lee said, "Wait, is JL going to review the only really good movie in this bunch? This thing is rigged." No, because I think I gave the best one in the bunch to Aaron. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This next yes. one, this is like very. This is one I've got personal attachment to. Fuck it's it, from man. October 22nd, 1982, you know, just shortly before the best thing that ever happened happened. November 8th, 1982. <laughs> it's Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yeah, this one actually has a, a, a deep place in my heart because the, um, 
like I watched horror movies as younger, but I met in middle school one of the like I think the first friend that was in the horror movies is watched uh, as much as I was. Well, I mean, we watched this thing like again and again. So like I hear two notes from that song, and I'm just like. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> But it is directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, written by Tommy Lee Wallace, John Carpenter, and Nigel Neal, and starring Jardine Barbour, Ralph Strait, Michael Curry, Stacey Nelkin, Dan O'Herlihy, and Tom Atkins. And oh it boy, is essentially... Tom Atkins! Fuck yeah, just, Tom I love, Atkins. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I fucking love Tom Atkins. The dude is fucking legend. He's got John, or he's got Tom Atkins tattooed on his ass. Uh, I love Tom. But, uh, I love Tom Atkins. The fact that you know he has that unique look, and he was a fucking leading man, and that guy was getting so much tail in in eighties films. It's unbelievable how many women got thrown at that man. It's like, and now I'm sitting here looking. I was watching this. I went back for the rewatch. I was like, oh, that's right. I have seen Tom Atkins's ass, and I've literally stood next to the man. And when he he's like much much older now, and I'm like, so I just it's just hilarious. But Tom Atkins is the fucking champ. Fucking Night of the Creeps. That's what I'm talking seeing, about. <laughs> seeing him with Jamie Lee Curtis in the fog, it's just like, yes. Maybe getting old isn't gonna suck as much as I thought. Maybe it'll still be okay. But uh, it's basically an investigator starts digging into a series of masks that have some some rather violent and odd incidents associated with them. Once he backtracks them, he finds out they have a chip in them that when a commercial plays. Um, on Halloween, it is going to trigger them to basically turn children's head into like shit pudding with centipedes crawling out. Is the only way I can think to describe what happens with those those poor kids and uh, his attempts to stop this, which are uh, dubious at best. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dubious proposition at best. <laughs> and yes to no, but you are correct. He was twice that girl's age. Dude, Tom Atkins moves fast. Tom Atkins sees tail. Tom Atkins gets tail. You know, maybe he's capitalizing on all the daddy issues that so many girls in the 80s had, but man, that dude fucking capitalized. I'm just gonna say that. That's why he's amazing. And of course, it, it, it's, it's his character in Night of the Creeps that sells it for me. That's why I love Tom Atkins, because if you, you're the film noir detective, you answer the phone with fucking thrill me. Like, yes! That is the kind of hero I want, so... Oh, because I just I just love everything the dude is in. Not to mention, he 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 reminds me very much of my dad when he was the dad in Creep Show. Like that's why that's why God made fathers, babe. And it was like oh shit! It's like that was so my dad when I was growing up. He just like smacked the kid in the face. You see this crap you're letting him read? Ah, it's like yeah, that was very much my father growing up. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I, may ha- I may have some unresolved dad issues myself. <laughs> I think JL's saying he wants to fuck him. No, I know. But... <laughs> Fucking twist. He's like, I wouldn't turn it down. <laughs> little from column A, little from column B. But, but going back and watching this one, definitely an underrated horror film. It could completely did not do well at the box office. Obviously, Halloween and Halloween 2 were about Michael Myers. And this was a complete switch because the initial inspiration behind this was that, you know, Carpenter wanted to... Carpenter's production company wanted to do uh, more of an anthology style. Uh, you know, kind of... Stay, he wanted to do every year do a Halloween film that was a, that was a different story. And that did not fucking play. 
at all. You nope, it did not. Which is just a shame because the movie is so fucking underrated. It, yeah, it's um the the thing that did it the worst because the era was bad for it, but the worst thing for it was doing it with such an iconic character, and they might might add in some tiny little sliver of a universe way out on the edge of possibility gotten away with it if they did it as part two and there had been some talk and intention of that but once they cemented michael in part two and then tried to jump in part three they were done um and then you can tell too examining it the era wasn't great for it i mean anthology horror has been around for a good while since back in what Oh, I think it was the 30s, actually, was the first anthology horror. Um, I think it was Dark of Night was the name of it. But um, the doing longer format anthology where you get through an entire longer plot cycle and then go to a new one, you can see an American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. Something similar to that now. No, it's not a movie, but um, it's an even longer format and people are still tolerant of it but yeah those two things combined it shot this thing down before it even came out of the nest and see it's such a shame because it is a good horror film and this is an excellent study on just pure expectations because if this was the second one or maybe it wasn't called halloween called just season of the witch that and people work, went yeah. into a front like fresh set of eyes not even expecting michael myers and then you can watch and be like oh well that's a really because this, this is a really good horror film and it's like but you the audience what are they waiting for what i was talking about earlier is slasher films are for the villain every other genre it's about the characters but slasher films is about the villain and so everybody in there waiting for michael waiting for michael waiting for michael michael doesn't come and people are like what happens instead of just in taking in the story as it is right yeah we i mean we talked about we talked about that earlier this episode is setting an expectation if anything sets an expectation and people come to it and don't get it fulfilled it's just gonna drop dead um because this is two you step out of with <clears throat> michael which later on they introduced supernatural elements they did that that was how you kept the slasher going back in the day because you can only kill a son of a bitch so many times before he has to stay dead. As, but, as um, evidence, Friday the 13th, part four mm -hmm. being the final one, and then having to bring it back supernaturally in part six, yep. because part five didn't have Jason in it and suffered the same way this one did. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and they stepped out of the non-supernatural realm into something supernatural. This was less single-focus opponent, more multi-focus opponent. And the, there was the, you know... The things that really carried over to it are the things from John Carpenter's influence, you know, back in the back. But beyond that, almost, obviously it's horror, but almost everything was different. Because even different subgenre, we're out of slasher, um, which Halloween invented, and now we're into Supernatural. Uh, just, it's too, too different. Right. The, that was the big thing is like, you know, and, and I, uh, like I said, taking risks is all about being a filmmaker is all about taking risks, trying to put something out there and trying to, I guess, you know, you try to put something new out there, something new that can capture the audience's imagination and really try to bring all this. If this had really popped, if they'd be like, oh, interesting, then we could do this anthology thing. The problem is anthologies at the time, when you look at things like Tales from the Crypt and Tales from the Dark Side, 
anthologies really only worked in short form. So short form horror worked well because you have multiple short stories, multiple little short horror stories with a framing narrative. Unfortunately, trying to do this big thing, it's, I think that it was way ahead of its time this to try to do a connected kind of film anthology, but each movie that you release is something completely different. It was a giant risk at the time because they didn't want to get cemented down like Friday the 13th or or any other slash deal where we keep revisiting the same shit over and over and over again because that gets tired. Carpenter recognized this out front, and Carpenter's always about trying to do new things, trying to tell new stories and new ways to, to really grab the audience. And I like what they did, but that's the perils of taking a chance because sometimes it falls flat. And, I mean, what can you do? And, for, unfortunately, because this thing fell flat, it would be six years before we get another one, and the only reason we got a fourth one is because they brought Michael Myers back. The same thing between five... It wasn't that long between five and six, uh, Friday the 13th, but the same thing. They weren't going to fund another one unless you brought back uh, Jason. And so, that's you know, the slasher icon. The money kind of outweighed on this one. You know, they are I say the money and the critical uh, or I say the commercial appeal. They wanted the slasher. We're deep in the slasher genre at this point. We've already have established multiple different areas. This was uh late in eight nineteen eighty two, and I think that if I remember correctly, um dang. Wow, I'm you know, I'm all over like, I mean I got Tom Atkins on the brain, so I'm totally spacing on <laughs> when a uh Somebody remind me when Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the, origi the original eighty-four. So yeah, yeah two years before, Dang. two years before, two years before Freddy. But we've already got Jay established. We've already got Michael established. Already got Leatherface established. So, and not to mention the deluge of slasher films that we have constantly talked about that came out after you know Friday Thirteenth smashed in nineteen eighty. So you got two years of just a dearth of slasher films. I can get. Wanting to get away from it and wanting to do something different. Unfortunately, you know, they just don't yeah. swing that way sometimes. And Nightmare on Elm Street was the one that reinvigorated the slasher. It was dying at that point, which it was a tactical move on their part to try and do this. But it was a poorly executed tactical move, which it's really disappointing because this, like I said, this is a great movie. Like amazing music amazing acting great writing like the visuals on it are just like which is good um and to think that the idea was almost sort of like a a festivalish idea where every year around halloween you get a whole new horror movie and to have had it done under the john carpenter umbrella you're guaranteeing some quality there so it's like john carpenter says this is shit we don't go ahead it would have really been a wonderful thing if people had been able to appreciate it for what it was. Because you see that in, now in video games they've got, which they missed their deadline this year. But um, it's the, um, I always forget the name of it. I think it's called the Dark Anthology or something like that. It'll hit me in a minute, but it's a video game. Shorter video game that comes out. Every year they drop a new one. They drop five totals from Supermassive Games. And it it came out until this year came out before halloween so you had this nice scary game to look forward to and it was an anticipation builder and it was just a perfect time of year for it and everything mm. to to have had that that could have gone on for who knows how many movies and eventually there would have been a drop in quality but still like we robbed ourselves as yeah. horror fans by not being willing to you know step out of our comfort zone and you know go to the theater put the ticket sales behind this put the reviews behind it and uh, just get it off the ground. 
wrote in the last name brings up slashers were becoming gimmicky uh holiday specific weapons etc right so because there's only so many ways you can reinvent that subgenre and the way you try to do something new so you wind up trying to either change up the killer change up the setting change up the intricacy make the kills more intricate or the kills more creative there's only so much that you can do to that and it is uh unfortunately you know um diminishing returns because there's only so many ways you can tell the exact same story. Killer targeting teens, teens get killed, final girl come over, over and over and over again. And I applaud them. And for those who were asked, and I applaud them for trying to do something different. For those who asked, the music of this obviously was, was composed by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth. And you can tell. There's there's elements in this that he reused for Christine, which is the, the kind of like synthesized tonality um, that he used throughout the little bits and pieces. And of course, the jingle as well, which was... The, uh, the Silver Shamrock uh, theme, which was set to London Bridge is Falling Down. And so, which is why it's so catchy and iconic. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I wish that, I wish it, I kind of wish it had gone in for direct, because I mean, I know that Halloween 4 gave us Daniel Harris, and uh, the continuation of that franchise allowed us to finally have the trilogy that we have today, which I really thoroughly enjoy. I wish it had kind of played in a different way. Um, it didn't work the way Friday the 13th, the series did. Because Friday the, 13th, Friday the 13th, the series, was excellent, but that was for television. Short-form horror. And then they just slapped, you know, uh, what was it, uh, Mancuso just slapped fucking Friday the 13th on. It was like, that'll sell it. And of course it did. And it was a good show. Unfortunately, that's that anth that anthology short-form horror that works, in that, uh, that works in that respect. This one just didn't work at the time. Way ahead of its time. I'm just, I'm kind of curious... And maybe, like I said, maybe ahead of its time, and maybe it's American Horror Story found the formula for it. But I, I would be kind of curious if, so let's say, Halloween did became did become an anthology like movie series, and it's like, how many times could you get somebody to watch? Oh, how many times I didn't watch and get invested into something for I guess like two hours, and then knowing that okay, well, it's gonna be it's gonna be gone. Um, it would actually would have been nice to see the different direction it could have gone. But on the other hand, maybe my wouldn't have become how he would in folklore. That's true. Because maybe what if you had the first Halloween just the way it is, and then say the second one was season of the witch, and the season with the witch is successful, and then the third one becomes something different, fourth one different, so forth, so forth, so forth. And maybe the first Halloween is the only movie we ever get with Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah, and then does that spawn off multiple, you know, Fridays and multiple nightmares, and it would have changed the entire genre, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could. I'm just saying, it could have had a, it could have had a huge impact because with a lot of the serial or the killers we have in slashers that are one ofs fall on the wayside. When you look at films like Prom Night and The Burning, that's like. They just kind of, they're just kind of back there and they kind of get lost in history. Yeah. So what you know, we, got some, we got some people talking about Carpenter as well, because Carpenter didn't direct this. Carpenter, uh, this was actually Tommy Lee Wallace's directorial debut. And then Tommy Lee, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace went on to direct a number of other films, um, I think under his uh, work, because he had, because he worked uh, as associate art director. He worked as an art director on Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13. So he was well connected with Carpenter. Then he was given this one, which is his first directorial debut. His directorial debut was Halloween 3. Then he also, I think he did Aloha Summer and Fright Night Part 2 and a number of other, just kind of like small films. Um, it, for, for a directorial debut, I didn't think it was bad. He obviously came from, you know, 
He, he, tutored, he pretty pretty much tutored under John Carpenter. I thought he did quite well. You could definitely tell Carpenter's influence is all over this because Wallace was kind of living up to that expectation. Carpenter's kind of handed you the reins to the franchise name. Now you got to run with it. I thought it was. I thought it, it worked quite well, especially for someone so new. Especially because originally I think it was. It wasn't. He he wasn't supposed to. Joe Dante was originally supposed to direct this, but then he was pulled off. I think he quit and directed a segment of the Twilight Zone uh, movie. Uh, he, he directed one of the segments. So then they needed a new one. Tommy Lee Wallace was available, so they grabbed him real quick. So yeah. I, and I wouldn't say this is a flub. Um, I, I wouldn't call this a flub. I think this would that this was a hit. And then of course, uh, Genova says Carpenter's biggest flub was Ghost of Mars. Um, that's definitely up there. Uh, yeah, Travis Brown says bad. Yeah, Travis Brown said I thought Carpenter's biggest flub was Village of the Damned. I would disagree because I think the performances of Christopher Reeves and Christopher Reeves and Christy Alley actually saved that film. I thought Christopher Reeves was was amazing in that. So just that's just my marketed correctly on that one. I've got to say that's why I never hit big, right? And then of course Tony Regime says Dark Star is a fantastic film. The lip scene is so good. So you know this is just one of those things. Unfortunately, uh, you know I don't think it gets the love that it deserves. I think it deserves a hell of a lot more. It's a well crafted story. Well, you know, decently acted for what it is. It's not intended to be a knife film. It's more intended to be a pod film, which is why it takes so much inspiration from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is kind of where even that final scene, stop it, stop it, it's very much you know, uh, him running through you know him running through traffic trying to warn people about it. It's the same kind of thing, and that's how the film ends. So it, it was a big, a big shift, a big throttle shift, and you know, unfortunately, I wish it played. Kind of wish it played out differently, just to see what would happen. But, uh, but yeah, good stuff. I'm glad more people need to see it. More people need to appreciate yeah. it. This is the year to freaking see it. This You've is got the year like to see what it. two and a half weeks to Halloween. Go buy, rent, you know, whatever this damn movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sircab says John Carpenter's worst flub was making the thing so fucking amazing that every other movie he's made since since pales in comparison. <laughs> this is true. He gets kind of <laughs> get, gets held up. Obviously, my favorite my favorite film of all time. All right, the audience question and how you can tell that JL writes the audience questions. Yes, I what do. <laughs> is your favorite Tom Atkins horror movie? Uh, you can let us know at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Drop it in the uh, comments or let us know in the live chat. And I'm Night sticking of, with uh, straight up. Night I'm of sticking with the fog. He the fog? picks up Jamie Lee Curtis, bangs her, and is like, "Woman, we're going killing ghosts," which explains <laughs> a lot of how I turned out. <laughs> <laughs> Just picks up that man moved. The, 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 he moves fast. Like it moved quick. Is like is like because Jamie Lee Curtis was hitchhiking and just picked her up and was like, "Okay, we're gonna do it." It's just now we got to go battle shit. I got to go be the hero, which is fucking amazing. And she doesn't um, ditch him either. She should have just yeah. been like, "Well, peace out. I'll see you later." But she said she's like, "I'll stick around for seconds. Let's do this and then come back." <laughs> <laughs> but I gotta love. I, I gotta say, you know. So your favorite's the fog. My favorite's uh, Night of the Creeps. Eugene, what about you? You know what? I might do a fun one on it, and I'll go ahead. I'll do Maniac Cop. I'm fucking fun. A. I'm gonna go fun with this one. <laughs> that's that's awesome. definitely an interesting movie. Like, like that's that's the good all over the place sort of movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Denova asked, "What was the point of turning the chick into a robot?" And I think that was supposed to be kind of like one of those insidious reveals. It's like because after she gets picked up and. 
I totally remember. This was a rewatch for me, but I hadn't seen it in years. But I was like, oh, that's right. Because after he, get, he pulls her out of the room, she never has any lines. And because of that, I was like, ah, that's right, because she's been changed. So that was the, that was supposed to be like the shocking. It was like, ah, oh, they even got her. You're all alone. And so yeah, that was increased. Yeah, kind of like invasion of, the bo- invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. How, you know, suddenly alone at the end. Travis Brown says Halloween 3. Joshua Lee, I do not have a Tom Atkins tattoo. Um, and I don't plan on getting one. Uh, Sir Cab says he's a freaking stud in everything. I don't think I've seen one I didn't like. Uh, Denova 20 says, wasn't he in My Bloody Valentine 3D? If so, uh, was he in that one? Yeah. You're talking about the 2009 one, right? Yeah, the, the one with, Jen, with Jensen Ackles? Yeah, he's in that one. That one. All I remember from that one is 3D tits. Um, everything <laughs> else I left in the theater. <laughs> I do, I do remember that he had a small turn as a, I think he had a small turn as a movie theater, as the guy running the movie theater in the in the uh, slasher film, uh, tr- uh, was it Trick, which is about a uh, a cult that wore the same the same killer's mask. It was a reversible uh, pumpkin mask. So he played a small role in that one as the guy who runs the who runs the movie theater on Halloween and shows, uh, whoop, dang it, I hit my mic and shows horror films. Kind of a- Tom Atkins and fucked up his microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, he was in Lethal Weapon. That's right. And Tony Regime says Maniac Cop in the Fog. So many. I mean, the guy himself yeah. said in an interview that if he could make a career out of just doing horror films, that he would do it. So, because he loves be he loves playing the hero. Oh, I mean, Denova yeah. Twenty Eight is also driving. Same thing. Oh, yeah. Denova Twenty Eight is drive angry. Yeah, he was in so many good ones. So definitely let us know down in the comments below. Or a week in horror at gmail.com. All right, Eugene. It is trivia time, bud. <laughs> One day I'll be able to get that right. One day. Alex just does it so well. So he for tonight's... Oh, Rodin and brought up Escape from New York as well. Yeah. So oh, yeah. for tonight's yeah. trivia question, trivia answer is Tom Atkins. No, the trivia answer is not Tom Atkins. <laughs> Changing the question. Is Tom Atkins' speak. butt tattoo. <laughs> Where on jail is Tom Atkins' tattoo? No. But for tonight's trivia question, we are giving away a Weekend Horror limited edition coffee mug. It's a special one featuring the limited edition art from Joshua Olson. So, in case you don't have one of those in your collection, um, we're giving one away tonight. And don't forget, in the Weekend Horror Discord channel, we have a channel where you can show off all of your Weekend Horror swag. So put up all the photos of all the stuff you've won from us, of all the stuff that we've sent you. Throw it up there so everybody can see what it looks like, because some of that stuff looks amazing, especially like the hoodie and the pint glass. All of them are great. But tonight we're giving away an official limited edition mug uh, for the first person to get the correct answer in the live chat for this trivia question. Take it away, Eugene. All right, get your Google fingers ready. The question is... What was the first major film makeup effects legend Baker ever worked on? What was the first major film makeup legend Rick Baker worked on? The first one to comment below gets the prize. First one in the live chat. See who's got it. The See, Sir Chasm's major- already like, I got it, but I'm, I'm sitting now. <laughs> Oh, he's giving it to somebody else. All right, let's see. Let's see. No, Tony Regime, not the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to excuse Tony. He's a jerk. 
Oh, yeah, and we got... There it is! Rodent, no last name. Octoman. Spelling's a little off, but... I think it's close close enough to count. That works for me, Octoman. That works, that works, Octoman. So, yes, it was Octoman. 1971 was the first major film that Rick Baker, that that legend Rick Baker, ever worked on. So, congratulations. Rodent, no last name. Let me get your name down. Fantastic. Congratulations, Rodent, no last name. Travis Brown said The Exorcist. Angel Rivera also said The Exorcist. Nope. Ordinary Jeff said Planet of the Apes. Oh. But yeah, Octoman. So, go and check that one out if you get the opportunity. Because <laughs> it's goofy as fuck. Although, I will say, the only good thing about it was Rick Baker's monster design. Because <laughs> it actually looked pretty Everybody decent. starts somewhere. Rodent L.S. says, why wasn't it paired with the Deadly Sting? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. (laughs) All right. So big congratulations to Rodent L.S. name for winning that. Thank you all so much. That will bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the Carpenter classic, Prince of Darkness. The end of the original werewolf franchise, The Howling, New Moon Rising, the gonzo creature feature, Don't Fuck in the Woods, and the classic trauma horror comedy, Terror Firmer. Yes, it's called Don't Fuck in the Woods. What do you want from me? Remember to cast your votes for me, for JL, to be the first face of horror, using the link provided in the description and in the live chat. And of course, a massive shout out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so very, very much. It's right there. Yes, I got the banner correct. That's the direction the banner travels in. So thank you all so very, very much. Oh, a a double clutched on me. Joshua Olson does all of the amazing artwork for our show, and his designs are incredible. Hit his store up at www.badsamurai.store. And for more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all of the socials for daily horror posts. Be sure to combat the evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing the living fuck out of that notification bell. And lastly, if you love what we do here and would like to and are able to support our production, you can by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many Patreon tiers. For as low as a dollar a month, you can help us to make the show. And we have tiers with... you know, awesome prizes and access to the show behind the scenes. So please check that out. But if Patreon is not your favorite stock and method, stocking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can hang out with us, are in the description below. And remember, the goal here at Weekend Horror is global horror domination, and we cannot do it without you, our amazing audience. So pretty pleased with the severed infested head of Clint Howard on top. Go share the absolute fuck out of our little show. Thank you all for being the greatest audience a podcast could ever have. I am JL. I'm Aaron. Gene. <laughs> I think you broke it. You broke up a little bit. Did, did, did I? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you all next week. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. And as always, stay scared. <laughs>